going through the book of 1 Samuel, and uh, we're on a series called Saul. So we're going through Saul's, uh, the beginning of Saul's life. Yes, Saul makes it all the way through the entire book of 1 Samuel. Uh, but he was, uh, we're on number four, I believe, on this series. And uh, we see that Israel is asking for a king. It did not make Samuel too pleased, nor did it make God pleased as well, that they are asking for a king, because God is supposed to be the king. So you see Samuel's reaction, but then you see God give them what they want. And said, God just says, Samuel, just, just hand it to them, what they want. They want a king, um, just like all the other nations. Uh, God gave them a king, just like all other nations, and his name was Saul. Now, the last couple of weeks, we've seen that, uh, that Saul is doing pretty well um, in regards to the king. But um, where is his heart would be the question. Uh, where is his heart? Because your heart is going to be revealed no matter what takes place. So he's doing pretty well in uh, the last three chapters we worked through. But um, this morning we're going to see a revelation of, of Saul's heart. Saul's heart then proclaimed on what is going on um, in the uh, inside. Now when you look at the passage that we're going to look at today, you're going to see a revelation of his heart come to the surface. And then you're going to see Samuel respond to Saul's heart by saying you're rejected as king. And then you're just going to have it dropped. Um, and then you're going to wait two more chapters, and then you're going to see God's full rejection of him being the king. And so what's going to take place is there's a war that is happening that's going to give a revelation of Saul's heart. This war is going to start this week, and I'm going to finish off the war next week. But it's found in chapter 13. And we look at chapter 13, as we go through it, we will just start with the first verse. Verse Samuel 13, 1. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, then the story goes on as he attacked. But as I put this notes down, I handed it in to my secretaries to do the notes, and they said, that verse, that doesn't make any sense. You need to change it. I said, I can't change it. It's, it's scripture. It's the way it is. But if you look at the verse, it doesn't make sense. Saul lived for one year, and then he became king. Was he one year old when he became king? You look at the different translations. NASB is a literal translation and this is, it. this is what it says. Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned for 42 years over Israel. You notice that the 30 is italicized? Meaning, ah, I had to put that in there because it doesn't really make that much sense. But would that even be correct? I mean, to put 30 years? Well, you really can't put 30 years. The reason why you can't put 30 years is because he has a son that's going to be uh, charging into battle named Jonathan here in the passage. So that doesn't actually even make sense. The best translation that's out there right now in regards to verse 1 is the new ESV translation. It's an updated ESV. It says, Saul was dot, 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 years old when he became to reign, and he reigned dot, 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 for two years over Israel. That's the best translation you're going to get after that passage. And ESV has done a very good job. So what does that mean? It means that these numbers were probably just lost in the original, lost in the original script. Everything is consistent with what is taking place, but these numbers were lost. The reason why I'm even bringing this up is because if you're reading these passages um, and you see that, you're like, what is going on? What is going on? What is going on? Well, it's, it's all right to be able to relax and say some numbers were lost uh, in the original. And I like the ESV translation that says, I'm not going to put anything in there because we don't see the numbers on the original text. Then the attack takes place. The attack of the Philistines outpost at Geba by Jonathan. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were in Saul, were with Saul at Michmash in the country of Bethel. 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. 
The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines. That was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. So if you look at Jonathan attacked and defeated the garrison, the garrison is the governor of the Philistines. That means the attack was very, very successful. After this attack, the news spread quickly amongst the Philistines that Israel had revolted against them. So what happens is that Saul mobilizes his army. We see that in verse 3. Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Then you see the Philistines mobilized their army since Saul mobilized his. Verse 5, the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up to encamp at Michmash to the east of Beth Haven. So Philistines were known for the iron chariots. We see that in the book of Judges. When we went through the book of Judges, these iron chariots know how to defeat armies. Uh, this was a war that they looked at because if you look at the numbers, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, this is a war that Israel could not win. And they looked at it and they knew it, that they could not win this war with the army that they had. But could they? I mean, they, we've read the Bible. I mean, you got, you got the entire book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and you watch and then Joshua, you watch God defeat all these armies and all these armies that they couldn't win, but God is the one that ends up defeating these armies. You look at the book of Judges. We went through the book of Judges and you see consistently that the armies are always outnumbered and they still win. These are armies that they cannot defeat without God. But if they have God, they can do it. But what was the response Israel was stricken with fear and panic when they saw the odds. We see it in verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him were trembling. Uh, this is not just fear. This is obsessive fear. I mean, they hid themselves in caves. What, what does that mean? It means if there's a cave, you can start piling people into them. Well, if the army is coming to attack you and a cave is large, you might be able to get 10 people in there. You might be able to get 50 people in there. You might be able to get 60 people in there, depending on how big the cave is. But if they do get attacked, they can still fight within the cave and defend themselves. But everybody's going to these caves, and then all of a sudden they fill up, and now where do they go? Then people start scatters into holes. Well, how big is a hole? You know, hole, sometimes only one person can fit. Maybe three, maybe four. I mean, but the holes are smaller than caves. But they didn't care, because they believed that if they could hide, they would be saved. And if they could not hide, they would end up perishing. They gathered in the rocks, that's cleft of the rocks, trying to hide behind rocks so they would not be seen. Then the next one, they went into tombs. These tombs probably were not empty. <laughs> These tombs were full of what? Dead bodies. But they were lifting them up and they'd climb in with a dead body just so they couldn't see them because they're so scared about being perish, about perishing. 
Then hide it in the cisterns. I mean, if you go into a cistern and then you get caught, I mean, all it takes is a couple arrows and you're, and you're done and it's over with. So they're not even trying to attack. All they're doing is hiding. Because in their mind, they were completely and entirely defeated. But they have God. And they have the Old Testament. And they see how God works. I mean, think about this. God is the one who has fought every single army in the Old Testament. He's the one that fights all the battles. And he uses people as vessels to fight the battles. We don't fight the battles. God fights the battles. Now, we see this with Moses. You know, you look at the story of Moses. You know, who brought the people out of Egypt? Everybody says Moses brought the people. Well, God doesn't give Moses that much credit in bringing the people out. He says, I brought the people out of Israel. I am the one that delivered. I am the one that set them free. Because whenever it talks about salvation, God is always the one that does it. Whenever it talks about saving his people, it is God and it is God alone that does it. And he's the one that gets the credit for it. So we get this story of Moses broken up into, his life is broken up into three different sections. The sections could be 40 years, first 40 years, middle 40 years, and last 40 years. What was the first 40 years of his life? First 40 years, he was training to be the strongest person in Egypt. I mean, he had mastered everything. And he has an army. He has the position. He has the power. He has the education. He has everything that he needs to do what? To lead the people out of Egypt. He has everything he needs to do to what? To save the people. And then we know the story. He kills the Egyptian. He goes to the wilderness. And then the next 40 years take place. What happens in the next 40 years? Moses loses everything he has for 40 years. He lost his army instantly. He no longer has a position. He's losing his wisdom. All he does is, you know, watch sheep for 40 years. So he was a somebody And in the next 40 years, God is making him into a nobody. How do we know God's making him into a nobody? Because God shows up in a burning bush and says what? Lead my people out. Now, if that was me, do you know what I would have said? I would have said, where were you 40 years ago? I mean, God, I had the army. I had the position. I had the power. If you want to lead the people out, I could have done it then. But instead, Moses' statement was what? Who am I? I can't even speak. I'm absolutely nothing. And then what has God said? Finally, you're ready to be used because you're not going to lead the people out. I'm going to lead the people out. And then Moses goes in there and then how do they get let out? They get let out by God doing the works of plagues because God fights the battles. Whenever God saves his people, it is him that does it. It's not you. It's not me. It's not Abraham. It's not Moses. It's, it's not, not them at all. We see this all the way through Scripture. When they come up to, they lead the people out and the Egyptians are coming after them with chariots. Who saves them? I mean, God says, Moses, order the people to go back away from the sea. They go back where? Go back into the hand of the Egyptians? Well, Moses just has to respond and say, God says move back, so move back. And all of a sudden he turns around and he opens up the Red Sea. And that day they won. By whose hand? They won by God's hand. Because if you're going to save the people, God's the one that saves the people. Remember going into the promised land? 
You see, you know, Joshua and Caleb go and they spy out the nations going to the promised land. They come back and what do they say? They say, all right, ready to go. And other people say, whoa, whoa, did you see those armies? Did you see how large those armies were? Well, Joshua and Caleb are like, yeah, but, but we have God. And he's the one that brings, you know, he's the one that saves his people. He's the one that's asked us to do it, so we, we do it. People said, no, we don't. We got an army that cannot defeat them, therefore we're not going to do it. What does God do? He sends them back to the desert to wander around for 40 years until they're all dead. Then he gets a new clientele, a new generation. And then all of a sudden they walk in and they fight battle after battle after battle in the book of Joshua. But who's defeating the armies? God's the one that defeats the armies. I mean, when they walk up to the walls of Jericho, God wants to say something about who defeated Jericho. He wants to say that he did it. Therefore, he gives them instructions on what to do. Walk around the walls of Jericho seven times for seven days. At the end of the seven days, blow their horns and your trumpets. That's not a very good military strategy. <laughs> but it's God's strategy. So when you read the story, you say, oh my goodness, who, who won in Jericho? God won in Jericho, not Joshua. God is the one that fights these battles all the way through scripture we we see it during the amalekites when they're under attack joshua is fighting aggressively in the field but he was losing but what moses do lifted his staff above his head and he started to pray and as long as there's prayer taking place with moses and the staff was above his head they would win what's that story supposed to tell us that joshua's a good soldier on the field no that God will defeat when you obey his instructions. God will save his people when you obey his instructions. We see it in the story of Judges and Gideon. I mean, what is the story of Gideon all about? I mean, Gideon goes, oh my goodness, we got to fight the Midianites again, and we cannot do it. The army's too small. And God said, oh, the army's, your army's too big. And Gideon's like, God, I mean, is there any um, common sense up there? I mean, he didn't say those words, but you know, if you think about it, that's kind of the words you'd want to say. But God says, your army's too big. I want you to go tell everybody who's afraid to go home. So Gideon says, my army's too small. And now God wants me to tell everybody to go home who's afraid. I know I'm going to lose a lot of soldiers, but he does anyway because God tells him to do it. Half of his army goes home. And God says, the army's still too big. So what he does, sends him to the river. And as soon as he goes down, to the river. God says, I will filter them out there. You wait for my instructions. He goes down there and says, whoever drank like a dog, I want him to go home. If you cuffed in your hands, I want you to go to war. All of a sudden, Gideon, who thought he had a small army, only has 300 people now. But he still has to walk forward, believing that God will defeat the army. Not him. If you look at all these Old Testament stories, it's interesting, in fact, that God fights these armies in different ways just about every time. In other words, there's no specific military strategy that works. Um, you know, when you rescue people out of Egypt, he saved them. He, what did he use? He uses plagues. It worked. So why doesn't God use it every time? I mean, if it worked, why doesn't he use it next time? Well, because every time he makes instructions, it's going to work. So the next time... He, Another time he just says, just walk around Jericho seven times. That's not a military strategy that you would use. But God's saying, all I want you to do is I want you to follow me. And if you follow me with the system that I put into place, I 
will defeat the army. But if you don't follow me, what's going to happen? If you defeat the army, you will get the credit rather than God. And all the way through the Old Testament, God doesn't want you to get the credit. Not when it comes to saving his people. When it comes to saving his people, he is going to do the credit and take all the credit alone. And that's why all this Old Testament stories are pushing that God is at work, God is at war, and he is the one that is completing the task, not man. What he does, he puts a system in place, and then he has a vessel, and that vessel is to follow the system. And when you follow the system like Joshua did, like Gideon did, you see the hand of God and his power work. So here's God working with Saul. What I want you to do is I want you just to follow a system. It's going to be an easier system than Gideon. It's going to be a way easier system than Joshua has ever had. It's going to be a way easier system than even Moses had. All you need to do is listen to God and respond to God and tell, do what he tells you to do. And then watch deliverance take place no matter how small your army is and how big there is. No matter what the odds look like, it's going to happen. Here's a system. It's found in verse or chapter 10. And we already went through chapter 10, if you notice. This is, chapter 10 is when they anointed Saul as king. And when they anointed him as king, God says, I'm choosing you to take out the Philistines, and this is the system how I'm going to choose you how to do it. So this was actually a, a prophecy that was taking place. All right, verse 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 8. Then go down before Gilgal, and behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings, to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. The war is going to get won. It's going to get won on three different systems. I want you to do three things. So I just want you to go down to Gilgal. And Gilgal is out of the way. Saul did that. He went down to Gilgal. The next thing I want you to do is I want you to wait for seven days. And then Samuel is going to offer, um, offer a, a sacrifice offering. And then he's going to offer a peace offering. He's going to give you two. It's a burnt offering and it's a peace offering. Okay, that's all he has to do. And then Samuel, after he offers those offerings, then I will give you instructions on what to do next. Remember where Saul's at. <laughs> all of his people are hiding in cisterns. They're hiding in tombs. They're hiding in caves. They're hiding everywhere. But don't worry, he's got an easy system for God's hand just to come unleashed on his enemies and on the Philistines. It's already been prophesied he's going to take them out. So all he has to do is follow the system. Here's Saul's response to God's plan to save his people. Saul waited seven days, which is good, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. You look at this and you can see the pressure that has taken place. Samuel didn't show up. His people are scattering. Who's going to fight this army? God is going to fight the army with the system that he's put in place. But, oh, Saul's heart is pounding, it's beating. If things are going to get done, <laughs> they got to get done by my hand and not God's. If I'm, salvation is going to come to God's people, I am going to have to intervene because God 
Samuel did not show up in time, slash God did not show up in time, and God's system is not working, therefore I will intervene. Is that really that big of a deal? I mean, is that really that big of a deal? God says, i got a system to save my people, and I want to use my system to do it. And all of a sudden, it's like, ah, I think I will do it instead of you. Of course, it's a big deal. I mean, we saw what took place with Gideon. Think about Gideon. If Gideon said, you want me to cut my army in half? Come on, God. I've done the math. I have to have them for me to win. If Gideon said that, do you think God's people would have been saved? No, they would not have been saved. It's the same thing. You think if Gideon says, I only have 300 people, I'm going back home and I'm not going to fight, would God's people be saved? No, God's people would not be saved. Saul made the same mistake that Gideon would have made if he said that. Gideon didn't make that mistake, therefore God rescued the people. It's a huge deal. The reason why it's a huge deal is because Saul's now intervened on the saving of God's people. Saul gives an excuse for not following God's plan, and we see that in verse 10. As soon as Saul had finished offering the burnt offerings, behold, Samuel came. Uh-oh. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Three different excuses were made. God, if they are scattering, I have no strength for the war. What does that mean? It means, God, you don't fight, I fight. It means, God, you don't win. I win. God, if I lose my people, I can't win the war. And God's like, whoa, it's my war. You just have to listen to me. The next thing he says, God, if you are irresponsible and not showing up on the time that you're supposed to show up, then I'm going to have to do something about it. You know, scholars have said, no, absolutely. He actually showed up on the same day that he's supposed to be. It was only 10 minutes after that he showed up. It was just early. You know, in other words, Saul just wanted to was too afraid, so he just responded to take his matters in his own hands. And then he, the other mistake that he says, the Philistines are ready to fight. If I'm not ready to fight, then we're going to lose. You see where his heart's at? His heart's not, it's off track. His heart's not tracking with God. God wins the battle. Saul, you have the Old Testament. You see everything that's taken place. You know that I win the battle. You are now the chief person that's going to bring salvation to my people in regards to these wars that are taking place and by me working through you, not you doing it on your own. Saul's like, if it's going to get done, it's got to be me. Cannot be God. We see God's response. To Saul through Samuel 13. Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man of his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be a prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. What's interesting is, 
the rejection of God is going to take place in the next two chapters. So the next couple of weeks you're going to see him completely and entirely reject God as king. But there's a fast statement here. This is what it is by Samuel. To say your heart's off track. Your heart's off track. How do you know he's saying his heart's off track? Because the next passage he says, I will find somebody after my own heart. Someone who will allow God to do his work through him rather than do your work yourself. That's what after his own heart means. His heart is off track. I'm going to get very specific and break this up into three different sections in regards to um, uh, the points that are being made in this passage. I want to look at Saul's disqualifying mistake. I want to look at the evangelical church's largest disqualifying mistake in the 21st century. And then I want to point finger to all of us and say how not to fall into the same disqualifying mistake that Saul made because it's completely applicable to us today. So what was Saul's disqualifying mistake? mistake? Number one, Saul believed that his way would be a way to save God's people. You know, we had a, a German shepherd. We grew up with a, um, a German shepherd for, um, when I got married, my mom gave us a gift to have a German shepherd. And I was logging at the time. So the German shepherd uh, was a good choice because my wife would be alone out in the field because I lived wherever the, wherever the job was at. And uh, the shepherd would not let anybody get close to our trailer, mostly if I was not at home. In fact, one person pulled up just to ask my wife for, for directions, and I was at work, and she was by herself. And that dog showed its teeth like crazy and says, you do not touch her or I will take you out. I mean, this is kind of the system, how that German shepherd worked. Um, after I quit logging and, and we lived in Talbot, my wife was doing a lot of child care. And the dog was just a sweet dog. I mean, extremely sweet dog. And, I mean, you can grab a steak away from the dog. You can pull on its ears. You can ride the dog. I mean, it's just a very sweet dog. And as she did child care, these kids would play with the dog. And uh, they'd crawl on him. They'd pull the ears. They'd t- I mean, whatever it took, they'd just play with this dog. And, and then the parents would come up to our house to pick up their children. And all of a sudden, that dog showed its teeth like crazy. It says, you will not touch these children. And the parents are going... Those are my children playing with that beast, and I can't even get my kid back because that dog will tear me, me, the parent, apart if I go after, after my kid. Because that dog says, do not touch him. God's the same way when it comes to salvation. He shows his teeth so aggressively. He says, when it comes to salvation, I am the one that saves. You do not. Period. Don't touch it. All the way through the Old Testament, you see all those stories that I just mentioned. God is making a point. I bring salvation to my people. You don't touch it. I am the one that does it. And then we see the disclosure in the New Testament. What is the New Testament? Jesus, who is God, leaves heaven. He comes to earth. He dies on the cross for our sins. He raises again 30 days later. It is God that brings salvation of your people. You don't Touch it. I mean, don't mess with it in regards to when God is going to save his people. Saul messed with it. Verse 9, so Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Not in God's system that he put into place. I save my people, therefore you do it when I 
say in regards to the salvation of my people. If you look at this burnt offering and peace offering, they have different connotations that kind of give us an explanation of even what's going on. A burnt offering is a sacrifice atonement to God. What happens with a burnt offering? It says, I need atonement. I need a death to save my life. And we see it all the way through the Old Testament. I need a death to save my life. So they sacrifice a lamb. They sacrifice um, different things that were in the Old Testament. And if they sacrificed them, they'd burn them, and the smoke would go up to heaven and say, this is an incense to God for God to accept us. That's what the burnt offering was. A peace offering was given in three different ways. It was a peace offering. It was uh, a gift, more so a gift of praise, a gift and a vow, or a gift of, of thanksgiving. Um, if you look at this, Saul took the burnt offering that Samuel is supposed to do. And we know that when God says, I want a priest to offer, a priest to offer this burnt offering for an atonement for the people's sins, I want the priest to do it. Anybody else would do it, would go and it would die. Would be taken completely and entirely out. We see the instructions all the way through the Levitical covenant. And through the Levitical covenant, they're saying, God wants this, 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 this done so he can save his people. And then it points to Jesus. Here we have Saul completely intervening. I can bring salvation on my behalf or with my strength. Number two, the second mistake Saul made is Saul believed that he could get God's saving power the way that he wanted to get God's saving power. God didn't show up on time and the the people are coming after me and my people are running. I need God's saving power, therefore I will intervene outside of God's plan to have the power to save my people and what happens if it worked? Again, he would get the credit. Verse 12, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord so I forced myself. I forced myself meaning that I should not be doing this but I'm going to do it anyway because God has not done it. God has not shown up. God is let me down therefore I will do it. That's Saul's mistake. I want to look at the evangelical church's largest disqualifying mistake in the 21st century. This is it. Number three, we believe that we can get God, be saved the way we want to get God, be saved. We believe we can get saved the way we want to get saved. Hope this was not true, but somebody put it on my desk. It was a survey that was done by Ligonier Ministries. And uh, it seems like the statistics are really high in regards to the survey. But um, if they are true, it's, it's, it's scary. This is what the survey said. It says 58% believe that God accepts worship from all different religions. 58% has moved across saying, yeah, God accepts worship from all different religions. 55% believes that everyone sins a little, but most people are good in, in nature. 53% disagree with the claim that even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. 44% believe that Jesus was a great teacher but he's not God. By looking at these percentages, or looking at even these statements, it crushes the whole gospel. God accepts worship from all people. God accepts worship to him and and him alone. The believers think sins is a little, uh, believes everyone sins a little, but we're good at nature. 
What's the first step of salvation? The first step of salvation is when we are crushed within. That I'm not a good person. My nature is bad, and I need a Savior. That's, what, uh, that's who we are. We're not good in nature whatsoever. God is. You disagree with the claim that the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation? The smallest sin is a defiance to God and God alone. 44% believe that Jesus is a great teacher, but he's not God. All the way through the Old Testament, he just explained God's the one that fights the army and God's holds to salvation is from him and him alone. How not to make the same mistake that Saul did in tampering with pieces of saving God's people. Number four, believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only way. There's two ways. <laughs> and the reason why I say that there's two ways is because the gospel of Jesus Christ goes the opposite of every single direction on the planet. God left heaven, came to earth, died on the cross, and rose again three days later so you can be saved. Hear these words, God died. Give me one more religion out there that says God died. In fact, I talked about a story this last week. I even said the words to this taxi driver that was saying Jesus is not God. I said, Jesus is God, and he just reacted to me. You tell me God died? And I said it even louder. Yes, God died for our sins. That's the opposite direction than anybody else is going for. You can't worship in all the different religions when Christianity is going this massive different direction. That God saves his people and you don't. Everything else is the way to achieve God. The way to make it to God. The way to impress God so he'll be accepted into his kingdom. That's every religion's base. But not God's base. Not the king of kings, not the lord of lords. God says you can't make it in. And since you can't make it in, I will send the perfect sacrifice who is me. Therefore, he is the only way. John 14, 6, as Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by God, except by me. Jesus is God. John 3, 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 1 John 5, 11, And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has a son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So, okay, then how do you get God? If he's the only way, how do you get God through Jesus? Here's the three simple ways how to get God through Jesus. You have to believe that you get to heaven by Christ's life, not yours. You get to heaven by Christ's life, not yours, Saul did not believe that. His heart was off. He did not believe that you get to heaven by God's way, not his. He didn't have the story of Jesus Christ yet. But he had the same heart that says, you can get to heaven any way you want. You can be saved any way you want. I can save God's people any way that I want. God doesn't mess with people doesn't mess with the concept of anybody attacking his salvation saying that he's not the one that does it. He lived an absolute perfect life which is required for a sinner to get to heaven. Let her be. You get to heaven, you must believe. You get to heaven by Christ's ultimate sacrifice. 
not yours. Get to heaven by Christ's ultimate sacrifice, which is his death, not yours. So many of us achieve that we can achieve God, believe that we can achieve God. We cannot achieve God. It takes God to fight the battle, and it takes God to save us. Letter C, you get to heaven by Christ's power, resurrection, not yours, which is works. We filter this all different directions as all of us or many of us are consistently have a massive guilt upon us thinking, how do I get to salvation? I wonder if I'm saved. I don't think I'm saved. For the statement that you say, I do not think you're saved, you're putting it on God because God is the one that saves you. And if you start thinking about it that way, God says, you have eternal security because you're not getting there on your life. You're getting there on my life. Same thing he said to Saul, you won't win that war. I will win the war if you let me win the war. But if you have a belief, a heart that's off the direction that I am the one who is the king of kings, lord of lords, and I'm the one that brings atonement to the people, then you're not saved. Acts 2, 22, this is Peter speaking. 3,000 people are saved after this verse, after this passage. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourself know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held down into it. Peter walked with Jesus for three years. And all of a sudden, Jesus ascended into heaven. And then Pentecost took place. And then Peter was going to preach a sermon that was going to change the world. You would think that Jesus, or that Peter would preach Jesus. You would think it'd be, you got to choose Jesus, choose Jesus, choose Jesus, choose Jesus, choose Jesus. But he doesn't. Look at this passage. He preaches God, the Father. The first thing out of his mouth is God the Father. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, man attested to you by God. He just took the whole testament and says, this man, God, has attested, has showed you that he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he showed you that he's King of kings and the Lord of lords by his signs and wonders that God did through his midst. He's connecting Jesus and God. As, as one. And then he gets wild and makes a statement. This Jesus, God, who you crucified by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because he was not possible for him to be held down into it. It was taking place. He just connected the Old Testament to the New Testament. Say, God's the one that's bringing salvation. And he's bringing it through Jesus Christ and him and him alone. Number five, what are we supposed to do about this? Respond to the gospel by embracing God. Embracing God is, is just a hug. <laughs> it's just, God, you have the answer. I need it. That's what it means by embracing God. God, you have the answer. I need it. I don't get to heaven on your life. I get to, or on my life, I get to heaven on your life. I need it. I don't get to heaven by my sacrifice. I get to heaven on your sacrifice. I need it. You get to heaven by your power, God, not my power. 
God, I need it. That's what you do when you embrace God. How do you embrace God? Letter A, repent by believing that you must have him to be saved. What's the word repent mean? Repent is just shattered. It's broken. It's, I'm sorry. It's defeated. God, I can't do it. That's what repent means. God, I give up. God, I'm lost. God, forgive me because you have the power to do it. That's what repent is. It's not doing any works whatsoever. It's just a shattered soul that has come to the conclusion that I cannot save myself, but God is the one that has brought salvation to me. Acts 2. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. Just be shattered on the concept of it. And the letter B, what else do we do By, to embrace God? Be baptized for the purpose of making a statement that you have been made new by embracing them. What is baptism? Baptism is just a statement. <laughs> a statement that God did it all. That's what it is. God did it all for me. And I'm going to stand up in front of everybody into water and I'm going to show that he did it all for me. I'm going to die going into the water and to be lifted up again to tell you the world that God did it for me. That's what baptism meant. And the rest of your life, what do you do? All you do is proclaim that God did it for me. And you live in such a way because God did it for me. And the whole concept of salvation shouts not your name. It actually shouts God's name. Just like every single battle in the Old Testament, when I save my people God's the one that does it. And today in the 21st century, if you are going to be saved, God is the one that's going to do it. It's the opposite direction of every single religion. Acts 2, 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of of the Holy Spirit. Number six. Saul was not rejected from being king because of his behavior. He was rejected because his heart was on the wrong track. i tell you the story of David, and it's, it's going to be about a year away, that you're going to see David fall. And what I mean by fall is that he's going to sleep with Bathsheba, who is not his wife, and then he doesn't want to get caught, so he's going to do, he's going to take Bathsheba's wife and put him on the front line. His name is Uriah, and he's going to have him killed. So David is somebody who committed adultery, and David is somebody who murdered some, the, the husband of the person he committed adultery to. And then you see two statements that Paul gives in the book of Acts. It says what? David is a man after my own heart. And what does that do? makes us angry at God. Why does it make us angry at God? Because it makes us look at this story of Saul really, really close. And to say, God, Saul got ripped off. He got ripped off. His behavior was a lot less worse than David's. And then we get all upset. Salvation is not about behavior. Thief on the cross did not have the behavior to get him into heaven. It's all about God. 
You see how it works? Saul's heart was off. In the 21st century, he'd be looking like somebody that says, oh yeah, Jesus will accept worship of all different religions. Jesus is God. No, Jesus isn't God. Jesus is, you know, he's a great teacher. He's, he's a great prophet. But no, God didn't die. God's not the one who brought salvation. Sins, you know, by nature, I'm a good person. I mean, I mean, it's not really that big of a deal. Do I even need God to get into heaven? Do you see, that's what it means when his heart is off. God looks at the heart. And what should your heart say and what should my heart say? My heart should say, I need God. Because he's the savior of the world. And I'm not. And that's not what Saul did. But it's what God has provided to every person. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you have done all the work. There's no way, God, that we cannot be paralyzed by guilt, oppression, depression, and just be a shattered person thinking that we can get to heaven on our life because we all know it's not possible. God, you left heaven, you came to earth, you died on the cross for our sins, and you rose again three days later so we can be saved. We get to heaven on your life, not ours. Thank you so much for that gift. God, I pray for every heart that is in the room that has rejected that gift of salvation, that does not believe that it is you that have done all the work. I just pray, God, that you'd open their eyes, open their eyes to the truth, that you are the only one that carries the power to save, and you want to save them. God, I also pray for the person that just feels guilty when thinking, I can't make it up to your heaven. God, they are absolutely correct. They cannot make it up to their heaven, your heaven, without you. And I just pray, God, that the guilt will be washed away as you change their mind and change their heart, that it is you that has saved them, not themselves. Thank you again for the gift of salvation. May it be proclaimed, God, to the entire world, knowing that it is the answer that the world needs. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.